Hello and welcome to Interlink. It is the podcast series under the Center for New Economic Studies, OP Jindal Global University. Interlink aims to break down barriers between various social, political, and economic issues and have nuanced discussions about the intersections between them. Under Interlink, we have initiated a new sub-series, Kitabo Ka Karma, wherein we hold intriguing conversations with authors on their recently published books, offering our listeners an enriching insight into the topic. I am Ishani Sharma, a research analyst at the Center and a third-year international relations undergraduate. For today's episode, we are conducting a book talk on the book, Social and Economic Transitions in China and India, Welfare and Policy Changes. We are honored to have two of the book's editors with us today, Professor Kirti Nakre and Professor John Klammer. Dr. Nakre is a professor at the Jindal Global Law School and has edited multiple books along with publishing in leading journals on gender budgets, child-sensitive budgets, and comparative social policy. She maintains a keen interest in research ethics and establishing linkages between academic research and policy. Dr. Klamer is a professor of sociology at the Jindal School of Liberal Arts and Humanities. Prior to that, he was a professor of comparative sociology and Asian studies at Sofia University, Tokyo, and then professor and advisor to the rector at the United Nations University. He currently works mainly on the interface of culture and development, the sociology of the arts and issues of sustainability. Thank you for joining us today, professors. Thank you. Thank you, Vishani, for the Thank you very much. All right. So um, to begin with, we would just start off by talking about the book in itself. And to that end, um, I would like to ask you about what is it that motivated you to choose the social and economic transition in China and India as the point of focus for your book? And given that both the countries, uh, it can be seen that they have an important and an increasingly important role at the global arena. Do you think that the socio-economic processes within these countries, they are becoming of um, increasing importance in the larger geopolitics? Yes. Uh, thank you, Ishani, for your question. Um, so I have been a welfare, uh, sociology of welfare uh, researcher for a very long period of time, for almost two decades. And uh, it has always been intriguing for me to understand welfare state developments in across the world. And when I started studying India, it was always looked at with a question uh, question mark by many people who were reviewing my work. And they would say how a country like India can actually develop a welfare state. It's so big and it's so diverse. And that is because the first generation of welfare states were actually developed in Europe, which were where the countries were relatively smaller and less diverse, and also in the historical context of the World War II. Uh, it was post-1980s uh, when globalization, privatization, and uh, uh, privatization uh, took uh, started taking shape in developing countries, and welfare, modern welfare state uh, started emerging in these countries as well. And uh, so when you look at India, often you need to kind of also look at other big countries and what other big countries are doing as well. 
So that is where the question was uh, something that was there in my mind. And luckily enough, we have the Center for India, uh, China India Studies in, at the OP Jindal Global University, uh, which was instrumental in promoting India China studies and uh, which gave a platform to us uh, in terms of two symposiums, one which was held in, U in our university and another one which was held at, uh, in Beijing at the National Institute for Social Development, wherein we got a chance to actually work closely with scholars from both the countries to understand the dynamics of welfare state developments. And that also meant that we could exchange uh, ideas, but also sh uh, discuss uh, specific data points, which uh, were fairly nuanced. And that kind of gave shape, uh, a shape to this book. And it kind of also is a very important contribution in the world of social policy uh, in big countries as such, because these are two uh, important countries in the geopolitics of the world. But also the welfare policies in these countries is going to uh, shape the achievement of sustainable development goals 2030 because uh, the because of their population and the more welfare uh, coverage there is for the population more well-being that means it will have implications for the global uh, global uh, community as well. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Perhaps I can add just a few a few thoughts to what, what Katie has said. You know, I often think of China and India as two kind of like awkward twins, you know, very different from one another, but yet somehow tied together in some interesting way. Not always, not always a peaceful way, right? But but always, always linked to one another. And I, th I think building on what Katie said, it, I think it's very important in in the context of welfare studies to also look at things from a comparative perspective. You know, you've got two big, the two biggest societies in terms of population here in the world, right? Uh, one with a much more planned kind of economy and society, one with a relatively unplanned form of economy and society. And it's, I think, very important then to look at the way in which, particularly the, the, the situation we've just come out of, to look at them comparatively in terms of the way in which they've dealt with the pandemic and its continuing effects, right? With you know, issues of migration, issues of population and so on. So they're, they're different, but yet I think the comparison throws up issues which comparing probably say India with, with Sweden or somewhere would never throw up those kind of issues, even though Sweden has an important kind of welfare state as well known. You know, it, it raises a very, very different set of questions, empirical and theoretical questions, and the India-China comparison throws up. Definitely, Professor, that is indeed very interesting. And how you mentioned uh, both China and India being awkward twins, uh, it might not seem that way, but they are quite related when it comes to similar problems that they're facing. Uh, but again, to further give a small glimpse of what's inside the book, could uh, you tell our listeners a little bit about what can they expect from, from the book and what are some of the major aspects of the socio-economic transition in both the countries that have been covered in the book? Uh, so thank you very much for your question. And um, so as uh, Professor John said that India and China are awkward twins, so they do share certain similar problems in terms of their uh, 
a certain kind of a historical trajectory and political, social and economic determinants as well. So one of the greatest achievements uh, that two countries have seen in the last uh, two to three decades has been significant reduction in absolute poverty. I mean, I, um, I would say China has been relatively more successful in terms of uh, uh, getting over coming. Uh, it doesn't have significant level of absolute poverty left. It has relative poverty now. And also, um, in, uh, some of the demographic challenges that China and India have are uh, aging societies. Uh, so even within India, we have a lot of diversity in our demographic patterns. Like Southern India is aging faster than Northern India. or uh, So there are these uh, finer nuances and also similar social trends and attitude changes in attitude towards marriage or having children and also increase in youth precariousness and low quality employment. So both the countries have these challenges and declining family fertility, improving life expectancy and increasing dependency ratio. These are some of the challenges that we have. Now, uh, there is, uh, in terms of the actual contribution of the book, uh, as you will see that each of the chapters written by authors based in their country gives a very nuanced understanding of the dynamics of these problems, whether it's class dynamics or the skills transition dynamic. So each of the chapters is fairly nuanced uh, in terms of understanding these sociological phenomena, And um, in terms of, uh, I think uh, one of the things, uh, it does kind of, uh, one thing that is comes across very clearly uh, is that we know about the China success story, but what uh, each of the chapter also tells us is the internal challenges that China faces with respect to uh, you know, issues of social inequality and also the massive expansion of welfare state, both in terms of coverage and generosity for its aging population as well, as well. Uh, of course, we know that China, within a short period of time, has become an upper middle income country, which is not the case with India. India is still a lower middle income country as per the World Bank. And even after COVID-19, China was able to initiate welfare reforms, which kept its middle class afloat. And uh, whereas in India, the challenge is the creation of the middle class uh, because uh, the middle class is a very important component of democracy as well, because it is the middle class which uh, is also the side, uh, class which produces innovations, which is has, uh, has aspirations for higher literacy, education, better health care. So, uh, so in India, the concern is around social mobility. And even people, uh, leading economists like Thomas Piketty have raised the question of questions of social inequality in India, that it's almost that 1% of Indians earn 22% of the income pool, which is not necessarily the case with China, which is 14% for China's uh, one top 1%. So China, to some extent, has been more has been more successful in creation of a welfare state, which uh, kind of creates opportunities for social mobility and also has created a middle class. I think which is critical for uh, for any society. Whereas India needs to work harder on that and needs uh, 
And also with a sophisticated middle class also comes a welfare state, which is a welfare state, which is more based on, which is more productive, in uh, which is not necessarily based on social protection, where social protection uh, to some extent reinforces social inequalities as compared to uh, social security, which is more about middle class having access to pensions, provident fund, healthcare, health insurance, edu good quality education for children. Uh, and uh, so that's where I think India can work. And I think uh, this book really draws attention to very fine nuances of welfare state changes in these two countries. Thank you. John? I think... It, no, exactly. The the comparison throws up a lot of these issues, and I, I think, as you mentioned, Katie, you know, at the very beginning, given given the size and economic and social significance of the two societies, what what happens within them actually has kind of global consequences. Um, those those can be of many forms. I mean, it can be people copying their internal. Uh, arrangement, say, in social welfare, or avoiding exactly those kind of models that they've <clears throat> themselves developed. Or it can be the kind of spillover effects of, of welfare or the lack of welfare, including, say, out-migration from either of those societies to the rest of the world, and its effects potentially destabilizing in some ways. So it means, I think, that the, whereas the internal study of labor markets, of education, of care of the aged and so on in both these societies is fascinating in itself, the consequences actually are, are really quite global. And for that reason, I think, uh, coming back to that question, why these two particular states, uh, that, that I think is the short answer, why they should be considered and considered in relation to one another. Thank you, Professor. Like that sounds really interesting. Um, Professor Clamor, your part in the book has focused on the role of religion in social policy. So turning our discussion towards that, what role, in your opinion, does religion or uh, religious institutions in general play in the social transition of a country in terms of its social policy? Good question, because I, th I think for some people, a, a paper, you know, an essay, a, a chapter of this kind would be a bit of an outlier in terms of the, you know, the normal central questions of, of social welfare studies. But I think the short answer to your question, and then we expand on that a little bit, is that in, in states where, where, or countries in which the state has relatively little role in providing social welfare, uh, either there is no social welfare or it's, it's non-governmental organizations of one kind or another that step in to fill that gap. And if you look around, not only in, in India, for example, China has a rather different history of its relationship between the state and religion, of course, much more controlled one than India has ever had, is that it is often, in fact, religious organizations that step in to fill that gap either in relationship to their own their members of their own kind of faith community, or, or in fact, in many cases, you know, much more generalized way of providing old age care, for example, education, hospitals, whatever particular form of, of welfare happens to be. So I think, I think that's, that's the kind of short answer. If in, in societies, India is unfortunately a case of this, where the state has a relatively minimal role in providing social welfare, it's very important to look at the other actors. And indeed, it turns out that many of those actors are religious organizations. 
Um, I mean, beyond that very short answer, I think I think there are other questions as well. Um, you know, behind a lot of decisions, political or social policy decisions, there are, in fact, whether spoken or not, questions of, of culture or why certain policies tend to work, why they're acceptable to people or, or not. And I think to explore that wider question of the kind of cultural basis of policy is, is important. And there are different ways in which you could do that. But one of the ways, obviously, would be to look at it through the, 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 the lens of religion, because you know, I think we'd agree that religion provides a very good key to the kind of basic values of communities, not necessarily the entire society. India, of course, is a secular, formally speaking, a secular society. Although, as the major Indian sociologist T.N. Madan once said, India is interesting, it's a secular state, but a religious society. And I think he's correct. Uh, that, that being the case, it is in fact interesting and, and I think necessary to explore the way in which a whole range of, of if you like, NGOs or in this case, faith-based organizations step in to provide the kind of facilities that maybe the state does not. I mean, beyond that, there, there are yet further and further and further questions, including, you know, the fascinating question of, of the role of gurus. Um, if you examine the role of gurus sociologically in India, you often find that their influence, where they have substantial influence, is precisely because they're not simply preaching, if you like, a religious message. They're also providing resources in the way of, of care, of, of educational resources, of agricultural input, of all sorts of things, um, healthcare, which other, other agencies are not providing. When you add all that together, I think you discover that religion turns out to be a quite major actor, although it may not be obvious at first sight, with a little more explanation, with a little more exploration, we find it in fact has a, a major role, particularly here in India, of course. So that would be, I think, I think my basic answer to your question. Uh, yes, Professor. And while we're talking about India, we can see that India has sort of a unique identity when it comes to religion, um, given the vast multitude of different ethnicities that it is composed of. Um, taking that into consideration, um, given the number of different religions and beliefs, how does this diversity affect the formation of social policy? And does it present some unique challenges for the country as well? I mean, I think in some cases, it, it, you, you see the fairly obvious mechanism of, of so-called faith-based organizations primarily addressing their own constituents, members of their own religious community. So in that sense, you have a very fragmented picture because you find a huge diversity, as you suggest, that reflecting, in fact, the religious diversity of the society as a whole. That can be potentially a little dangerous, of course, as well, because it can provide a, a you know, the, the interface between religions is sometimes also a point of conflict. Um, on the whole, I think studies show that in relation to welfare, it, it's not a point of conflict. It's a point at which people are prepared to accept, you know, across religious grounds, if you like, um, you know, the kind of help that they would desire, whether it's like healthcare or, or whatever. Um, meaning that, in fact, that fragmentation is, is very real at one level, but I think at another level, it, it oddly enough is a kind of interface of a kind of dialogue between religions, uh, precisely because when they put aside their primary, primarily doctrinal differences and begin to focus on their, their potential welfare or actual welfare role, that provides people with a very different image of what any one of those religious communities stands for. And, and I, I would hope, I don't know if there's 
very much empirical evidence to this yet, that does create a, a sense of tolerance, at least, um, that the kind of doctrinal approach does not. But that practical approach to social welfare uh, provides a very different vehicle for religions to come into dialogue with one another because people can see their socially useful contribution or what they're trying to make as their socially useful contribution, particularly, of course, when that contribution is not seen as a kind of missionary activity, you know, not something that's trying to convert people, but is, is disinterestedly offered to people as reflecting the hopefully fundamental values of that particular religious community. Oh, yes, Professor, and I think it's sort of a relief when uh, when certain uh, different ethnicity, ethnicities who might seem uh, to be at loggerheads at some points are sort of peacefully coexisting when it comes to um, welfare policies and working for the social good of the people. Uh, but moving on, Professor Nakre, um, you wrote about the demography in China and India. So to that end, given that both the countries, they have an aging population now, and that just stands as testament to how Professor Klammer earlier mentioned, how both China and India are sort of awkward twins who share certain similar set of problems. Um, have they adopted a different approach to address the common issues, such as the old age support programs? And if that is the case, why is it that their approaches are varied? Uh, and could that have an impact on the outcomes of such programs? Uh, definitely. I think the in terms of uh, there are basic differences in demography and demography does influence uh, the alignment of welfare state responses to it as well. Now, uh, by uh, 2030, it's expected that India will overtake China's population and will have 8.8% of uh, in, uh, people who were the age of 65, whereas uh, China will have uh, almost 17.2% of its population of age uh, in the about the age of 65. Now, definitely China feels a greater urgency in terms of responding to the aging population. And also it is likely to see a decline in its working age population much faster than India, whereas India is expected to have a working age population till 65% at least till 2050, which kind of doesn't create a sense of political urgency in India because the popular, popular uh, political rhetoric in India is that we have a young population, so we don't need to worry about aging. And also, it also connects to the question of uh, religious stereotypes and all, where we have always believed that our joint family system, our kinship will address, will take care of the agent. Now, that again doesn't, somewhere there is a kind of a, a lack of, a sense of lack of urgency because India's uh, pension policies uh, are largely seen as being sustainable, but are not seen as being adequate. That is, people who get these pensions uh, get very low amounts and it is, not uh, it is not enough for them to sustain their life. Whereas in China, there is a more, there is a, if the Chinese welfare state is more generous. And of course, there are inter-provincial inter differences, like some provinces would have higher pension and also uh, pensions, uh, whereas as compared to others. And also the Chinese uh, pension system is uh, has uh, been stratified, but there has been efforts to reconcile it much more between 
uh, address the differences of uh, uh, address the differences between urban and rural workers and also the migrant workers because historically migrant workers were did not uh, were not would were fairly disadvantaged in the chinese welfare system now since the last decade the chinese government has made significant efforts to reconcile these differences and improve the coverage and adequacy and also make it uh, more sustainable as well whereas in indian case the political urgency is not there and also uh, india doesn't necessarily see uh, pension policies uh, as uh, as part of its social investment policies as well uh, so it is not seen as uh, it, it's not there is the continuity between the employment policy and pension policies are not clearly established and also again there is a stratification of wherein large sections of our informal workers are covered by social protection which is basically small amounts of money which is uh, which just keeps them afloat but it does not promote any kind of uh, well being or anything of that thing so there are significant differences and uh, only a small per percentage of india's working population enjoys a very good pension which actually would uh, cover certain amount of its wa their wages uh, or uh, a provident fund or healthcare insurance so india uh, is fairly behind when it comes to these policies when it compared to china as well and also it has implications in terms of uh, does uh, because such a large section of india's population is in the informal labor economy how will it kind of how will this uh, this uh, current generation working age population unless they are saving enough how are they going to fund their own pension when they start aging so there is this whole question of uh, intergenerational transfers and uh, generally across the world intergenerational uh, transfers are no longer seen as feasible because it just because of the employment structure also and the kind of pressure it puts on the younger generation to pay for the pensions of the exist uh, the aging generation as well so there are these uh, questions uh, generally if on the surface the chinese social policy and welfare uh, policies are uh, looking more mature and also uh, they have um, and also india actually needs a lot of structural reforms and also increase and reduce and kind of needs to reduce the inequality in uh, inequality in old age pensions amongst this population as well and also there are significant interstate differences so interstate differences when it comes to pension coverage as well which is also an area of concern in india as well uh thank you thank you professor um you also focused on the importance of artisanal production for the indian economy so taking into account that the traditional artists in india they they have an immense contribution towards rejuvenating the country's culture and heritage why is it that their contribution has not been proportionately translated into the development of their community could you tell our listeners a little bit about what are some of the struggles that um, they continue to face thank you very much uh, for your question so uh, it is i would say the artisanal uh, the question of traditional artists has uh, been pertinent in my mind 
partly because uh, we are continuously in the mainstream economic thinking or sociological thinking we are told about the dual the dual sectors that are there in india that is the formal and the informal sector and the informal sector is largely unskilled now this is coming from the modern language of uh, industrialization as well because historically we did take very lot of pride in our culture and in uh, the kind of exquisite uh, artifacts produced by our artists as well now that was the question and i did find some answers in this chapter that i wrote because uh, in 2019 the un general assembly declared 2021 as the year of creative economy of sustainable development and it was also the time uh, it has also been recognized by unesco as the area which will create uh, 30 million jobs now how do we create these jobs is by recognition by recognizing that there is a certain skill set already available with artists whether they are now the when i talk about artists in within the indian context it could be as diverse as the khatris of uh, say gujarat or madhya pradesh in rajasthan who produce certain forms of uh, prints on clothes or it could be the you know people producing uh mithila paintings so it is a very diverse uh, a diverse class of people that i'm talking about and drawing on uh, marxist uh, theory and also michael hertzfeld's uh, global value chain what i realized that it is the modern economy which doesn't recognize the artisanal skills because the modern economy uh, equates skills with a uh, a complex uh, formal education model whereas artists learn it through localized community kinship based groups and uh, also apprenticeship is very important for them uh, so it is uh, also if we really want to uh, really uh, Oh, we really want to recognize. We should really recognize artisanals from the perspective of plurality, diversity, as you correctly said, also and mutual respect. And it has a very important implication for national development because it's a significant portion of our population, and also they are not very well documented. So I think if India really starts documenting the artisanal skills available in our urban and rural areas. it would be a phenomenal contribution to national development and also we need to recognize uh, so in this particular chapter i also looked at ajrak and i looked at the role that institutions like gurjari national institute of Fa uh, fashion uh, design national institute of design uh, have played in resurrecting ajrak and also uh, in terms of making it part of the modern fashion landscape of india but also the continued challenges that these artists face in terms of climate change because of depleting water resources which historically it was fresh water which also played a very important role in uh, creating these colors for the prints which is no longer easily available and also the gujarat earthquake again had a very deep impact upon the available on the topography and the availability of water and the chemical composition as well so climate change is one of the challenges that many of these artists face along with a uh, market uh, the availability of uh, uh, markets for their goods and services complex value chains that can be made available to them as well 
an organization of themselves into cooperative structures so that they are working in groups with access to market. So I think um, drawing from Danny Roderick also that um, that developing countries will not have to face a focus on smaller informal for, uh, firms for their national development because uh, we also know that large firms usually adopt technological changes at a much faster pace and they don't necessarily need human workers as much as smaller firms, which could be the next, will be play, play a very pivotal role in employment generation for India's large population. So I think that is where I think they, there is an enormous potential and it is uh, up to the government to create regulatory mechanisms and institutional structures to support artisanals. And I think that could be a big uh, change in India's employment landscape as well. So thank you very much. Yeah. If I could just add a tiny footnote yeah. to what yes, you yes. said. Sure. Um, you know, as you as you mentioned before joining JGU, I worked for the UN. One of my one of my jobs was to liaise between my own agency and UNESCO, the United Nations you know, Educational, Cultural, and Social Organization. And one of one of the innovations that UNESCO itself has made in the last five years or so, it's been a very, very late discovery, was what they're calling the creative economy. That is to say, they've begun to realize the extent to which the kind of things that Professor Katie was just talking about are in fact both a major part of economies and therefore potentially contributing to poverty alleviation and so forth. But but they go beyond purely the economic, of course, because they have to do with identity, with, you know, cultural dignity, people's sense of history, and this kind of stuff. So it means this kind of artisanal or artistic work actually potentially has wide ranging implications. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you know, she's drawn attention to that, both what she just said in her chapter in the book, because I think this is a, a indeed a neglected, but actually quite key issue. Definitely, Professor. Yeah. And um, that brings me to my last question. Uh, one can say that both the countries, they're at a critical phase in their socioeconomic trajectory. Then what do you think is the way forward for the social and economic transition in China and India? And what lessons can India learn from China? As Professor Nakre earlier mentioned, that India can learn from China in terms of better old age support. So what else can India learn from China? And similarly, what is it that Beijing can learn from India's achievements. Uh, do you want uh, me to answer the question? Yes, Katie, why don't you try to start anyway? Yeah, so uh, definitely I think both the countries have to learn from each other uh, in terms of we are both trying to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. And we both have to think and rethink our welfare policies and align our welfare policies to the demographic and social cultural changes that are happening into the society. Like I already said that India has to work very hard on creating a middle class and that would go a long way also in terms of addressing social inequalities because I think that is a serious challenge for India social inequalities, and it does need welfare policies. It does need policies, uh, welfare policies on employment, pensions, to address these policies, uh, to address social inequality. Because social inequality in the Indian context is a deeply sociological phenomenon because it is rooted in gender and gender and caste and class and ethnic inequalities as well. So India has to work very hard on it to address that. 
but also uh, we need to kind of work and uh, collaboratively with China on challenges of climate change as well, because it's a, a problem that is cutting across boundaries and climate change is having significant implications for both the countries as well. I mean, we uh, we have enough evidence of the challenges in when we open the newspaper every morning. Uh, but also in terms of, I feel sometimes that India does deal with citizens' discontent uh, slightly more uh, satisfactorily as compared to China. Uh, so, for example, we also know that China has to be has to be very considerate towards their citizens because of which you can see that they, uh, you know, they. Uh, they actually addressed, removed all the COVID-19 restrictions just before the new year so that their citizens could go and meet their families and friends. So that is also shows that uh, both the countries need to learn from each other and, you know, try to ensure that the citizens' discontent is addressed through effective welfare policies and they are able to achieve certain levels of well-being for uh, their citizens as well. So that is the thing that I think where we can learn from each other and we need to kind of join hands and uh, kind of work on addressing global challenges of climate change, social exclusion and gender justice and also equality in the economic realms as well. So John, over to you. Well, of course, that's a very big question. I mean, on the one hand, particularly when you perhaps look at what India might learn from China, um, the question of good planning, not just planning, because planning can be overdone, of course, planning that works and in fact is, is allowed to work out its implications through the system is, is perhaps one, one message. And something I think that China could probably learn from India would be the necessity of in a sense, creating spaces for people to try out ideas and to create diversity, because you know, a model that may work in one place may not work in another. Um, quite unrelated to our book, uh, a group of colleagues, I worked with a couple of colleagues at the National Law University in Bangalore and one at Queen Mary University in London, in fact, on the differential impact of or, or fulfillment of the SDGs in India. And what, what that study showed up, amongst other things, were, were the way in which, on the one hand, there were huge divergences between states in terms of how effective they were in implementing the SDGs, but also the way in which different states were experimenting with ways in which they could, in fact, try to incorporate SDGs into their public policy. Um, I, think, I think one of the great values of social welfare studies is it's a kind of litmus test. You know, if, if you're looking at where the way in which society is going and the fundamental issues which they face, there's probably no better indicator and although that can have depressing outcomes in a sense, you know, can point to what the, the real problems are in a society, they also alert us to, I think, the, exactly the point at which attention needs to be paid in terms of public policy. And in that way, it has not only a, you know empirical role in describing what actually goes on in different societies, but indicating the, you know, the key directions that those societies are taking. And in the light of that, they provide a kind of map of the way in which public policy might be formulated exactly around the nature of those problems. Thank you, professors. 
Um, that brings us to the end of an extremely insightful and thought-provoking conversation. Uh, it was indeed very interesting to discuss in detail some aspects of the socio-economic transition of both India and China, some of their welfare policies. Um, I would also encourage all our listeners to get a hold of the book, Social and Economic Transitions in China and India, Welfare and Policy Changes, which as was evident by this very short conversation, it is bound to be an engaging and deeply thoughtful read. Um, I wholeheartedly thank you professors for joining us today. And I'm sure our listeners were able to take back some enriching knowledge from this conversation. Thank you. And thank you so much, Ashani, for um, so fluently managing the, the, the event. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank I deeply appreciate this uh, opportunity, Ishani, and uh, we are happy for more uh, to take questions by email or uh, and uh, thank you very much and thank you uh, again. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.